Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 28, verses 1 through 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out, about the sixth and ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out, and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatever is right, that shall ye receive. Burkett Notes A twofold sense and interpretation is given in this parable, but both analogical, one of which relates to the calling of the Gentiles. The Jews were the first people that God had in the world. They were hired into the vineyard betimes in the morning, the Gentiles not until the day was far spent. Yet shall the Gentiles, by the favor and bounty of God, receive the same reward of eternal life which was promised to the Jews, who bear the heat of the day while the Gentiles stood idle. In the other analogical sense, we may understand all persons indefinitely called by the gospel into the visible church. Those that are called last shall be rewarded with the first. And accordingly, the design and scope of this parable is to show the freeness of divine grace in the distribution of those rewards which the hand of mercy confers upon God's faithful servants. The vineyard is the church of God. The husbandman is God himself. The laborers are particular persons. God's going at diverse times into his vineyard imports the several ages of a man's life. Some are called early in the morning, some at noon, others at night. Now, when God comes to dispense his rewards, those that entered first into the vineyard and did the most service for God shall be plentifully rewarded by him. And such as came in later, but did faithful service, shall not miss a merciful reward. Learn one, that so long as a person keeps out of Christ's vineyard in service, he is idle. Every unregenerated man is an idle man. Two, that persons are called by the preaching of gospel at several ages and periods of life into God's vineyard, that is, into the communion of the visible church. Three, that such as do come in, though late, into God's vineyard, and work diligently and faithfully, shall not miss a reward of grace at the hand of free mercy. Verses 8 through 16. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired, about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them, and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. That the time of God's full rewarding of his laborers is the evening of their days. 
that is, when their work is done. When the evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard called his laborers and gave them their hire. Not but they have part of their reward in hand, but it is chiefly laid up in hope. Observe, too, that though God makes no difference in his servants' wages for the time of their work, yet he will make a difference for the degree of their service. Undoubtedly, they that have done most work shall receive most wages. He that soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. God will reward every man according to his work. That is, not only according to the nature and quality, but the measure and degree of his works. All shall have equity, but all shall not have equal bounty. Observe 3. That all inequality in the distribution of rewards doth not make God an unjust acceptor of persons. He may dispense both with grace and glory in what measure and degree he pleases, without the least shadow of unrighteousness. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Observe 4. That when we have done much service for God, by laboring longer than others in his vineyard, it is our duty to have a low esteem, both of our services and of ourselves. For the first shall be last, and the last first. That is, they that are first and highest in their own esteem shall be the last and least in God's account. Verses 17 through 19. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Burkett notes, This is now the third time that Christ had acquainted his disciples very lately with his approaching suffering and bloody passion. He did it twice before, chapter 16 and chapter 17. Yet now he mentions it again, that they might not be dismayed, and their faith might not be shaken to see him die, who called himself the true Messiah and the Son of God. The first time he told his disciples of his death in general, the second time he declares the means by treason. Now he tells them the manner by crucifying, that he should be scourged, mocked, spit upon, and crucified. All this he did to prevent his disciples' dejection at his suffering. Learn thence that it is highly necessary that the doctrine of the cross be often preached to us, that being so armed with the expectation of suffering before they come, we may be less dismayed and disheartened when they come. Our Lord's frequent forewarning his disciples of his death and suffering was to forearm them with expectations of his suffering and with preparations for their own. Verses 20 and 21. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one at thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Burkett notes, To sit on the right hand and on the left is to have the most eminent places of dignity and honor after Christ. This the mother might be encouraged to ask for James and John because of their alliance to Christ and because Christ had admitted them with Peter to be with him at his transfiguration. However, the rest of the disciples, hearing of this ambitious request of the two brethren, and being desirous, and in their own opinion as deserving, of the same honor, they had indignation against them. Whence note that none of the disciples did imagine that Christ had promised the supremacy to Peter by these words, To S. Petrus, thou art Peter. For then neither James nor John had desired it. 
nor would the rest have contended for it. Observe here one, the persons making the request to Christ, Zebedee's children, that is, James and John, by the mouth of their mother. They speak by her lips and make use of her tongue to usher in a request which they were ashamed to make themselves. Observe too, the request itself. Grant that these two may sit, the one on thy right hand, the other on thy left hand. Where note how these disciples did still dream of Christ's temporal kingdom, although he had so often told them that his kingdom was not of this world, and ambitiously seek to have the preference and preeminence in that kingdom. See here how these poor fishermen had already learnt craftily to fish for preferment. Who can wonder to see some sparks of ambition and worldly desires in the holiest ministers of Christ when the apostles themselves were not free from aspiring thoughts? even when they lay in the bosom of their Savior. Ambition has long affected churchmen and troubled the church, even from the very first original and foundation of it. Observe three, both the unseasonableness and unreasonableness of this request made by the disciples. Christ speaks of his suffering to them, and they sue for dignity in great places from him. The holiest, the wisest, and best of men in their imperfect state are not wholly free from passionate infirmities. Who would have expected that when our Savior had been preaching the doctrine of the cross to his disciples, telling them that he must be mocked, scourged, spit upon, and crucified for them, that they should be seeking and suing him for secular dignity and honor, preeminence and power. But plainly we see the best of men are but men, and that none are in the state of perfection on this side of heaven. Verse 22. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. Burkett notes, As if Christ had said, You do but abuse yourself with fond and idle dreams. There is other work cut out for you in the purpose of God than sitting upon thrones and tribunals. To think of suffering would do you more service. And accordingly, our Savior, in his answer, tells the disciples, one, that they were greatly ignorant of the nature and quality of his kingdom, which was not secular, but heavenly, but the carnal notion of a glorious earthly kingdom upon earth, in which they should be delivered from the Roman power, was so deeply imprinted in their minds that they frequently declared their expectation of it, notwithstanding all the assurances which Christ had given them of the contrary. Observe, too, the course which our Savior takes to cool the ambitions of his disciples. He tells them they must expect here not crowns on their heads, but crosses on their backs. They must first taste of his suffering before they talk of his glory, and patiently suffer for him before they expect to reign with him, plainly intimating that the cross is the way to the crown, suffering the way to reigning, and that those that suffer most for Christ shall partake of highest dignity and glory from him. Observe 3. The presumptuous confidence which the disciples had of their own strength and ability for suffering. Are ye able, says Christ, to drink of my cup? They reply, We are able. Alas, poor disciples, when it came to the trial, they all cowardly forsook him and fled. A bold presumption makes us vaunt our own ability. Holy jealousy makes us distrustful of our own strength. Those that are least acquainted with the cross are usually the most confident undertakers. Verse 23. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, 
and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. Burkett notes, Observe here our blessed Savior's wonderful mildness and gentleness towards his disciples. He doth not with passion, much less with indignation, reprehend them, either for their ambition or presumption, but makes the best of their answer and encourages their good intentions. He tells them that they should have the honor to share with him in his sufferings, to pledge him in his own cup, and after a conformity to him in his sufferings, they might expect to be sharers with him in his glory. Yet observe that when Christ says that to sit at his right hand was not his to give, he means as he was man, or as he was mediator, for elsewhere, as God, we find him asserting his power to dispose of the kingdom of heaven. John 10.28 I give unto them eternal life. However, the Arians of old, and Socassins of late, do from the text infer that God the Father has a power reserved to himself, which he had not committed to Christ his Son, from whence they would conclude that he is not the same God which the Father is, because he hath not the same power which the Father has. Answer. But if Christ be here supposed to deny this power to himself, he must then manifestly contradict himself when he says, I appoint unto you a kingdom, and all power in heaven and earth is given to me. When Christ therefore saith, he could only give this to them for whom it was appointed of his Father, this doth not signify any defect in his power, but a perfect conformity to his Father's will, and that he could not do this unless the divine essence and nature abided in him. This the words rather show than that there is any want of power in Christ. Verses 24 through 27. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentile exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Burkett notes, Note here, 1. That Christ by these words doth not forbid the exercise of civil dominion and lawful magistry. For then all order, all defense of good men, and punishment of evildoers would be taken away. Magistry is God's ordinance, and the magistrate is God's minister for the good of human society, and consequently not here censured or condemned by Christ. True, when Christ was here on earth, he refused to execute the magistrate's office, because his kingdom was not of this world, and because he would give no umbrage to Caesar or the Jews, and because he would leave us an example of humility and contempt of worldly grandeur, and not because the office of civil magistry was unlawful. Note, too, that Christ by this text doth not condemn the exercise of ecclesiastical government, that being as necessary in the church as the former in the state. The welfare of the church necessarily depends on the exercise of ecclesiastical discipline. Note 3. Christ here forbids only the exercise of that dominion which is attended with tyranny and oppression, and is managed according to men's wills and lusts. Now, says Christ, you shall have no such government. You shall command nothing from mere will and pleasure. But your whole office shall consist in being ministers to the good of others, and herein ye shall resemble me the Son of Man, who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. 
accordingly that Christ might effectively quench those unhappy sparks of ambition which were kindled in his apostles' mind. He tells them that supremacy and dominion belong to secular princes, not to the evangelical pastors who ought to carry themselves with humility towards one another. Not that Christ directs to a parity and equality amongst all his ministers and forbids the preeminence of some over others, but the affectation of superiority and the love of preeminency is that which our Savior disallows. Learn one that so far ought the ministers of Christ to be from affecting a domination and superiority of power over their fellow brethren, that in imitation of Christ their Lord and Master, they ought to account themselves fellow servants. I am among you, saith Christ, as one that serveth. Two, that such ministers as do love and affect preeminency and superiority are most unfit for it, and they deserve it best who seek it least. Three, the dignity and honor which the ministers of Christ should chiefly and only affect is in another world, and the way to be greatest and highest there is to be low and humble here, mean in our own eyes and little in our own steam. Whosoever will be chief, says Christ, let him be your servant. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Burkett notes, to encourage his disciples to the forementioned condescending humility one towards another, our Savior propounds to them his own instructive example. I came not to be ministered unto, says Christ, but to minister to the wants and necessaries of others, both for soul and body. Oh, what a sight will it be, as if our Lord had said, to behold a humble God and a proud creature, a humble Savior and a haughty sinner. Yea, our Lord urges his example farther, that as he laid down his life for us, so should we be ready to lay down our lives for one another. Did Christ lay down his life for us, and shall we not lay down a lust for him? Our pride, our ambition, our affectation of dignity and superiority over others? Note here two things. One, whereas it is said that Christ gave his life a ransom for many, it is elsewhere affirmed that he tasted death for every man, even for them that denied the Lord who brought them. The word many, in other places of scripture, is not exclusive of some, but inclusive of all. Thus, Daniel 7.2, Many that sleep in the dust shall arise. Answers St. John 5.28.29, All that sleep in their graves shall hear his voice. Thus, Romans 5.15, through the offense of one, many died. Answers 1 Corinthians 15.22. In Adam, all died. There is a virtual sufficiency in the death of Christ for the salvation of mankind, and an actual efficiency for the salvation of them that repent and believe and obey the gospel. Note, too, from these words, he gave his life a ransom, that Christ suffered in our stead and died in our place, and gave his life instead of ours. It was the constant opinion, both of the Jews and Gentiles, that their peculiar victims were ransoms for the life of the offender, and that he who gave his life for another suffered in his stead to preserve him from death. And who can reasonably suppose, but that our Lord intended by saying, he gave himself a ransom, that he gave his life instead of the lives of those for whom he suffered. Vain are the Socians when they say this price was to be paid to Satan, because he detained us captive. True, 
The price is to be paid to him that detains the captive, when he doth this for gain, and to make money of him, as the Turks detain the Christians captive at Algiers. But when a man is detained in custody for violation of a law, then it is not the goaler, but the legislator, to whom the price of redemption must be paid, or satisfaction be made. Accordingly, this price was paid to God, for Christ became our ransom, and as he offered up his life and blood for us, now he offered himself without spot to God. Hebrews 9.14 He therefore paid the price of our redemption to God. <laughs>